To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org slash donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org slash donate. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com slash marketplace to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com slash bonds. You know, sometimes in this economy, you got to look to the past to see what the future might hold. From American Public Media, this is Marketplace. In Los Angeles, I'm Kai Rizdal. It is Wednesday today, the 24th of January. Good as always to have you along, everybody. We are only going to do one story on this show today. And as we get going, I'm just going to say this. I need you to trust me. We are going to talk about this economy, of course, because that's what we do. We're just going to do it a little differently. Franklin D. Roosevelt. His campaign promise, a new deal. His campaign song, Happy Days Are Here Again. All right, wait, wait, wait. Stop, stop, stop. Because I know, I know, you've heard it all before. Great Depression, FDR, the New Deal, and then boom. Social Security, federal deposit insurance, airports, roads, bridges, and more. But hear me out. The New Deal changed the relationship of the government to this economy forever. There was the government and the economy before the New Deal, and there was the government in the economy after the New Deal. And right now, President Biden, in complicated, invisible, and sometimes contradictory ways, is trying to do a version of the same thing. I'm about to sign the Inflation Reduction Act in the law. Today I'm signing the law, the Chips and Science Act. Now let me sign this bipartisan bill. We're not saying Biden's FDR and we're not saying the infrastructure bill and all the rest are the New Deal all over again, because you never know how things are going to work out, especially since we're in an election year. But what's happening now and what might happen over the next decade or two could be the biggest change in how the government interacts with the economy since the Great Society half a century ago or the New Deal back in the 1930s. So over the next couple of months, we're going to be on the ground looking at some of those changes and how and whether it all might work. We're calling it Breaking Ground. We're not going to know for a long while whether what Biden's doing is going to get traction. But 90 years on, We've got a real good grip on how the new deal turned out. Uh, so you're recording on your end. We are recording on our end. Um, and so if you're ready, we're going to get going. Great. 
All right, good. First thing I need you to do is tell me exactly who you are and how you would like to be identified. That is a profound question. My name is Jason Scott Smith. I'm a professor of history at the University of New Mexico. I'm Price Fishback. I'm an economic historian. I am Natalie McDonald, and I am a graduate student at Cal State Northridge studying history. Um, I'm also a research assistant with the Living New Deal. Three historians, yes, one of them is technically still an historian in training, all studying the New Deal. Inglewood High School is kind of funky looking, huh? Kind of art deco-y. The place? Inglewood, California, just southwest of downtown Los Angeles. The person? Natalie McDonald, graduate student and research assistant on the Living New Deal. What is the Living New Deal? So the Living New Deal is a crowdsourced public history project based at UC Berkeley. And uh, since 2012, we have been mapping New Deal sites across the country and really trying to get at the legacy of the New Deal uh, in, in the United States to this day. To review, quickly, I know, FDR is inaugurated in March of 1933. Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. And right away, he starts pushing policies to fight the Great Depression. Our greatest primary task is to put people to work. Also restoring confidence in the banking system and giving people jobs, often building infrastructure. It can be accomplished in part by direct recruiting by the government itself, treating the task as we would treat the emergency of a war. When you think about what the New Deal built, you probably think about the Hoover Dam... The Lincoln Tunnel, maybe? Big stuff like that. But part of the premise behind the Living New Deal project that Natalie works for is that those policies built so much more than that. How does the New Deal, the grand overarching Franklin Roosevelt thing of the 1930s and getting us out of the Depression... How does that reach down into beautiful downtown Inglewood, California? That is such a good question. Um, So the New Deal was comprehensive and wide-ranging. And there's so many examples of um, the the hidden but dramatic impact uh, that the New Deal had on Los Angeles. So my responsibility is to work on mapping New Deal sites around the city, getting them on our online map. Most New Deal sites will have some sort of marking but many will not. So do you spend your day like driving around L.A. saying, is that one? Yeah, no, I don't think so. And then going to the next one? There's some of that. And then there's a lot of digging through archives, digging through libraries, a lot of combing through just yellowed, crumbling documents, uh, trying to, to follow a thread of, oh, okay, this project started in 1935. That's probably New Deal. Oh, yes, here it is. It got some PWA funding. Okay, now let me go see, does it still exist? If you go to livingnewdeal.org, you can zoom in on your town, your neighborhood even, and find stuff the New Deal built. Like a retaining wall in Mason City, Iowa. Or a swimming pool in Monroe, Louisiana. And if you click on the dot in the spot we're standing on... It is nice and sunny on a Southern California December morning. It's gorgeous. You'll find a mural called The History of Transportation. Tell me about this mural that we're looking at. Absolutely. So this mural 
uh, was done by Helen Lundberg. And Helen Lundberg was an artist. Uh, she was actually, interestingly, they were called the post-surrealists. Um, and they were a group of artists here in Southern California. Um, her work uh, under the New Deal was a little less avant-garde than her own personal work. She was a government contractor, basically. She was a government contractor. Do- doing, doing the art that the government wanted. Exactly. The murals about the evolution of human transportation walking to airplanes on eight-foot-tall concrete panels. It may also be the largest petrochrome mural in the world. Um, And petrochrome is this uh, technique we see here. You grind up colorful rocks, put them in molds, create kind of puzzle pieces, and then put them together into a mosaic. If you get up close to this thing, I did touch it. It's outside, so I guess it's okay to touch I think the art. Totally okay. fine. I did, and you can feel all the pebbles and the rocks and all that jazz. We should say it's huge. It's 240-something feet long and seven, eight feet high. Exactly, 60 panels. Um, and yes, it's massive. Seriously, massive. It runs almost a whole city block. And it was paid for by the Works Progress Administration. The same New Deal program that built retaining walls and dug swimming pools also hired artists. The New Deal, it was an investment in the democratic future of the country. And so that meant investing not only in infrastructure, not only in um, our roads, not only in our schools, but in democratic life in as many ways as possible. And that included the, the, our creative lives. Uh, what, what, clearly you're interested in history. What got you into the, to the New Deal, New Deal? Um, serendipity. Natalie grew up in L.A., and when she started graduate school, she planned to study world history, not the New Deal. Uh, I think through my undergrad years, I had uh, kind of decided that I needed to look outside to find world history. I had to look, you know, across the ocean, uh, further afield. Um, But landing at uh, Northridge, doing some of the coursework that I've been doing, began to realize, actually, world history is right in my own backyard. So why am I telling you this? I'm telling you because the New Deal really is in all of our backyards. You might not think about it when you're going to a swimming pool or driving past a retaining wall, but that's the after of the New Deal, the government in the economy. The before, the government and the economy, that's what we got Jason Scott Smith on the phone to talk about. He's at the University of New Mexico. And when you're at, like at a dinner party, the kids' soccer games, and people say, hey, Jason, what do you do? What do you tell them? <laughs> a couple of ways I can answer that. Um, I say I'm a historian. I'm a historian who I study modern U.S. politics and the economy. Um, my son, when he was in first grade, was asked on a field trip, what does your dad do? And he said he waits until everyone's asleep at night and then he eats all the ice cream. That was, that was not quite the ego building identifier. So. Jason wrote a book called A Concise History of the New Deal, 226 pages concise. Set the table for me. March of 33. Roosevelt is inaugurated. What's he looking at? He's looking at a nation on the brink in many respects. But around the corners wind the lengthening bread lines. You see banks starting to fail across the country in a cascading sort of effect. And a whole new class of citizens appears in American society. 
the new poor. One in four American workers didn't have a job. That's almost twice the unemployment rate of the pandemic recession. So, of course, Roosevelt comes into office, he calls the Congress into emergency session, and we have the famous first 100 days. Bill after bill pours into Congress from the White House. Whatever Roosevelt wants, he gets. FDR and Congress were trying all kinds of things to stabilize the economy. Everything from federal theater projects to legalizing light wines and 3.2 beer. And an alphabetical avalanche of new offices and agencies. F-E-R-A, C-C-C, T-B-A. Is it apparent right away that what's happening here is a fundamental change in how the government interacts with the economy? You see some fundamental changes. I mean, this is a great historical question. You know, where is the change and how do we measure it? Um, you do see some big changes. One thing that's happening, men are going to work for the government by the millions on new buildings, roads, schools, bridges, anything to get the forgotten man, as Roosevelt calls him, off the bread lines and on the job. Any job. This Public Works Administration in 1933, it gets a $3.3 billion appropriation. At the time, that was 165% of federal revenues. Think about that for a second. That'd be like the government appropriating more than $7 trillion today to just one program. That's an enormous investment in public works construction. You know, something like that had never been tried on such a scale before. Roosevelt was able to get this assistance into the economy very, very quickly. It's much harder now, I think. I would gently take issue with that in the sense that our perspective on the Great Depression and Roosevelt helps us get to that historical judgment that they acted quickly, that their programs had rapid effect. And I think if we pull back and look at that history in a more granular fashion, we can see that it took time. 1933, 1934, 1935, the Public Works Administration is very slow to get money out into the state's into the localities to start building public works. But after a couple of years, unemployment did start falling, and in the 1936 elections, FDR got the win. It is the greatest political sweep in history. The honeymoon didn't last forever, of course. The Supreme Court ruled some New Deal programs unconstitutional. But what did last, more really than most of the programs themselves, are the questions the New Deal raised about the role government ought to have in our daily lives in this economy. This is a big shift in the American experience, in the American society and economy. The federal government is a player in a way that it never had been before. So after the break, how big that big shift in the American economic experience actually was. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in. 
our email newsletter course. You can start whenever and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org slash academy. This is Marketplace. I'm Kai Rizdal. The theme of the program today, the New Deal. The moment spread over a number of years, I grant you, when the government's role in this economy changed forever. There was the government and the economy before the New Deal and the government in the economy after the New Deal. And we're talking about it because what President Biden and Congress are trying to do right now and over the coming decades is to create another hinge point. And with the CHIPS Act and the Infrastructure Law and the Inflation Reduction Act, change again, but differently, how the government is in this economy. What did it do beyond just 1933, but in the out years of the New Deal, as it were? What was the effect on how people interacted with their government? Is there like a before and after picture you can paint for me? The before and the after... This is a big shift in the American experience and the American society and the economy. The federal government is a player in a way that it never had been before. Pay attention here, would you? Because this is the shift. The traditional picture that we have of when do Americans encounter the federal government before the New Deal. Generally, it was when they went to the post office, right? Here's this federally constructed network postal system. This is where you go. This is where you interact with the federal government. After, after the New Deal, Americans are interacting with the federal government in an almost daily sort of way. Um, Taxes withheld from their paycheck to fund Social Security. Federal bank deposit insurance. Your savings are safe in the bank. All of these ways that Americans are encountering a social safety net, a kind of welfare state that did not exist before. What happens during the 30s is the federal government starts to take responsibility for like labor markets and for poverty relief. Price Fishback at the University of Arizona. I'm an economic historian. Of what? Uh, Oh, I'm an economic historian who studies the New Deal. Why the New Deal? Because the New Deal is kind of the biggest peacetime growth of government in American history. The biggest item in today's federal budget is Social Security, a New Deal program 90-ish years old that we still talk about today every time we talk about the federal budget. So as a guy who studies this stuff and now is, you know, 90, you know, your your area of, of academic expertise now was 90 years ago. Do you think in 90 years we're going to be talking about Biden and what he was trying to do with all this spending he's doing now? Uh, no, I think this is a drop in the bucket relative to what's going on. It is very much a drop in the bucket. When FDR took office, this economy, all of it, was worth $57 billion. Today, $23 trillion. But the reason we're doing these stories isn't about the dollar amount. It isn't about spending. It's about how that spending completely transformed what the government does in this economy. My university, I walk along the sidewalks in the university and WPA is stamped into the sidewalk. I drive to the Albuquerque airport. I still see the 1939 terminal building. And the artwork. 
The mural that Natalie and I looked at together and all the other dots on that Living New Deal map she's helping to make. One of my favorites is the Los Angeles Public Library opened a uh, outdoor public reading room in Pershing Square in 1936 in downtown Los Angeles. Right now, the Biden administration is doing a version of the same thing. New government economic involvement in new ways, like in the CHIPS Act, expanding the definition of infrastructure to include childcare. There are real questions about whether the federal government ought to be expanding its reach like this. But if it goes the way the Biden administration is hoping, and again, that's a big if, see also this being an election year, you can see how we might be talking about this era 90 years from now, the way people are still thinking about the impact of the New Deal. If we went to downtown Inglewood and stopped 10 people on the street, or downtown Los Angeles, or downtown any town USA, um, and ask them what they thought of the New Deal, what do you think the answers are? It's been so interesting to me how many people not only of my generation, um, but kind and, of... And you are... I'm 26. Okay. Born 1997 at the millennial Gen Z kind of mm-hmm. border. Mm-hmm. Um, so not only my generation, but, you know, the full range up through the boomers. How many people will kind of look at me a little bit confused when I say I'm doing research on the New Deal? And they'll say, okay, that, that was Roosevelt. Depression. And I, exactly. Yes, exactly. But that's generally where kind of the ordinary American's knowledge stops. And I was one of those people up until a year ago. And that's not on us as Americans by any means. That's a product really of, of decades of divestment in public works and losing the thread of this history. Why does it matter? It matters uh, so much because if we know what was accomplished during the days of the New Deal, what is possible when the government invests in the country, in Americans, there's hope that we might be able to accomplish something similar in the future. What does happen when the federal government invests in new ways for new reasons? What does it look like? How does it actually work? What eventually happens? That's what we're going to be covering in our new series, Breaking Ground. And it gets us to where we are going for the next installment. One street in one neighborhood in one city. Uh, we're in East Las Vegas right now, as they say. <laughs> I've been living in Vegas since 1998. We are really trying to revitalize the corridor. It's really painful, but need to be done in order to have a better future. What 24 million federal dollars mean for the people of East Las Vegas. As I think I've mentioned a time or two on this program, I'm a history guy, so today's show was and is right up my alley. But I learned a lot of things, too, about the New Deal, specifically what it meant for the city of Los Angeles. We talked last week about the Arroyo Seco Parkway, the first freeway in California that I take all the time, actually, and that it was built with the help of the New Deal. Well, that ain't all. Here's Natalie McDonald one more time. 
small towns, massive cities, um, neighborhoods throughout those massive cities, all affected by the New Deal. And Los Angeles in particular was really transformed by the New Deal because Los Angeles was going through this period of rapid um, expansion, um, really developing into the megalopolis it is today uh, in the 30s. So that period of growth as a city coincided with this period of um, dramatic federal investment in public works, and they dovetailed such that Los Angeles was utterly transformed. I, I don't want to overstate the case, but that's an interesting thing to say. Would Los Angeles be the city it is today without the New Deal? I don't think so. Well, you get to decide. You're the expert. You're the historian. <laughs> I, 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 I think that Los Angeles would not be the city it is today. And there's so many examples. Um, the one that I had no idea until I began doing research for the Living New Deal was LAUSD, the, the school district. Um, in 1933, we don't hear about it very often, but there was a massive earthquake in Long Beach. And it didn't happen during school hours, thank goodness. Um, so no one was injured. Uh, but... LAUSD schools, most of them, which were brick at the time, essentially crumbled. And so you had school children for months on end learning in tents uh, because their schools weren't safe. Luckily, this again happened to coincide with the New Deal. And so the Public Works Administration, PWA, um, granted the city millions of dollars to refurbish, reconstruct, rehabilitate over 130 uh, LAUSD schools that had been affected by the earthquake. And most of those are in use to this day. This final note on the way out today, a thank you to the people we talked to for this story. Natalie McDonald did Cal State Northridge, Price Fishback at the University of Arizona, and Jason Scott Smith at the University of New Mexico, who took a whole bunch of time out of his schedule to tell us about the New Deal. And so who gets the last word today? It would be great to have you in one of my lectures. One of my favorite student evaluations was if I only had an hour left to live, I'd want to spend it in <laughs> Professor Smith's class. It got worse, though. I'd want to spend it in his class because it would seem like forever. <laughs> I mean, come on, right? Anyway, Breaking Ground is the name of the series. Five, maybe six installments over the next five, maybe six months. Depends on how we get them done. Our media production team includes Brian Allison, Jake Cherry, Jessen Dooler, Drew Jostet, Gary O'Keefe, Charlton Thorpe, Juan Carlos Toronto, and Becca Weinman. Jeff Peters is the manager of media production. I'm Kai Rizdal. We will see you tomorrow, everybody. This is APM. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.